I'm Reed from Bloomington, Illinois. I'm Matt from Savannah, Georgia. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program is one of America's fastest-rising young comics. Uh, His name is Nick Thune. He's got a brand-new compact disc out on Comedy Central Records called Thick Noon. Let's hear a little bit of Nick's stand-up comedy. Don't you wish that somebody would open up a restaurant and name it I Don't Care so you could finally go to the place your wife is always talking about? Maybe they could open up a sister location. Name it, you decide. I'll tell you guys the most awkward place to run into a homeless person. It's on your way to the coin star. Actually, sir, I don't have any spare change. I know. Looks can be deceiving. This is not spare. I've been saving this. I'll tell you what, though, if they give me change back, it's yours. No. God bless you. Nick, welcome to The Sound of Young America. It's great to have you here. It's great for you having me here. I know. Wait, I'm sorry. No. No? No. It is great that you are having me here right now is what I was trying to say. It's great for you. Great for me. Feels great good. For, yeah, great for my confidence. It's an honor. Jim Lehrer mm-hmm. was the last person to sit in that seat, my friend. Uh, yeah, listen to that. Host of the host of the PBS NewsHour. It's on the website right now, right? Absolutely. Yeah, right there is. on MaximumFun.org. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. haven't got his gravitas, I have to say, but he doesn't have your beard. Yeah, he could. I, I don't, I probably could. <laughs> he could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd give it to him. If he requested it, mm-hmm. sort of like the Smithsonian Museum of American History requesting the Fonz's jacket. Like a locks of love sort of a thing. Sure. Here's my, here's my beard hairs. <laughs> there are newsmen who can't wear beards <laughs> because of their, their producer's insistence. And I'm donating them for free, you know, to better, I guess, the news. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it is, it, is, it is sincerely great to have you here, Nick. Um, Thank you. What was the first comedy that you remember really making an impression on you? Uh, I think it was my father that that really did growing up, but I think he was heavily influenced by like Fred Willard and Chevy Chase, kind of in, in what he liked. <laughs> that sounds like the most amazing father ever. Yeah, yeah. My 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 first Halloween that I remember, he wore the outfit in Fletch with the beard, and you know he's roller skating on the beach <laughs> yeah. with that big like pajama thing. I don't even know what they call that. And then he says his name is Dan Marino. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and he Roger fought... Staubach. Oh, he's yeah, and that's the first movie I remember seeing was Fletch, uh, like comedy wise, and A Fish Called Wanda. He made me watch a lot, and just all these really great you know comedies that when I was growing up, I I think I fell in love with comedy right away. And he had a, we had Betamax of Fernwood. Of uh, Fred Willard and and uh, Martin Mull. Martin Mull. That's a that's an amazing level of dad self awareness. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think you see a lot of dads whose biggest comedy influence is uh, actors probably best known for playing buffoonish dad types. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprising that he found that. Yeah, he. I mean, he 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 really wanted me to play sports. He's a big sports fan, and I think the the comedy was just kind of on the side, and then. 
somehow that's what I ended up doing. Did you ever play sports? I did. I what tried did hard. Play? Baseball. It's Problem was, is I didn't hit. I didn't actually get like a muscular frame until I was like sixteen or seventeen. Not like it was a lot of muscles, but my adult muscles, I guess, is what you call them. And all my friends were way better than me, so I just kind of sat in the back seat. But it taught me to really want people's attention in other ways, and I think that's why <laughs> comedy picked up. Like, oh, it was you, it was your failings in that area. Yeah, yeah. Because my friends were incredible athletes. Like they went and played football in college, and they were my just my neighbors in my neighborhood. So I was kind of always trying to somehow get attention alongside them who were like, they were like president of my class and stuff. What, okay. What, what was the first time you ever uh, made it onto the stage as a, a standup? What was the first time you ever did standup? I think I was 20 in Seattle and it was just like, uh, I'd written a song for this class I had at community college as a way to present this thing I was doing as an interesting way. And then I just took it to an open mic right away. Cause I thought it was funny. And, uh, that's, I'd seen Mitch Hedberg and that was kind of like, I'd, I was really impressed with stand-up, but I didn't think I was capable of it. I didn't think I was smart enough. And then when I saw Mitch Hedberg, not to say that he's not smart, but the humor came at me in a way where it was like, I think I could somehow accomplish this. You know, like Steve Martin was intimidating to me, although he's my idol and all those people. So I think Mitch Hedberg actually put it in this manner of delivery that I understood. That's interesting. You know, you have um, uh, a lot of your act is... Um, a lot of your act is jokes. Was it always, and I mean, obviously all, co- all comedy is jokes, but mm-hmm. it's, um, it, a lot of your, uh, a lot of your act is, um, uh, simple jokes sort of in the, in the way that Mitch Hedberg's act mm-hmm. was, for example, or, or Steven Ryder. There've been many, uh, joke comedians. Yeah. Um, uh, was your act always that way? Was that always the centerpiece? It wasn't. It started with stories. The first piece I did was like a five-minute story about uh, peanut butter and like how I'd been introduced to it by my mom. And I think from from that, I was writing stories. And the next thing I wrote was a piece on my CD about Instant Messenger, which was a you know, love story of two people on the computer. And I really kind of was going in that story direction. And then the jokes just kind of started happening. And now I feel myself going back into the stories because those are the ones I enjoy writing the most, you know, the biggest payoff and you know, a five-minute piece, the the response is so much bigger than just that, you know, 10-second joke. It's just a sentence. Although that is a really great, rewarding feeling just to say a sentence and get a laugh. Uh, let's hear a bit of that instant messenger piece. The year was 1994. My dad brought home the first family computer. It was an apple. Thanks, Dad. He brought it inside and he put it on the table. He said, Nick, I can't set this up. I'm too old. I grabbed his hand and said, I can do it, Eric. He said, call me Dad. I said, all right, Dad. You see, back then, we didn't have high-speed internet. I was straight into the phone jack. 28K, you know. If you had call waiting, you were screwed. I had 1,250 free minutes of AOL burning in my back pocket. My dad said, Nick, you're too young. You're too young. You can't have your own screen name. But you can use mine. It's Salmon with an E-R-D at the end of it. Salmon Nerd. So I got online as Salmon Nerd and I found out about chat rooms right away. And that's where I met her. Instant Cotty 503. 
Sometimes in Zincotti, 503 would say stuff, and I'd be like, what? She'd be like, JK, and I'd be like, LOL. <laughs> Idiot. It's like I knew she was just kidding, but I was literally laughing out loud. And if you're doing that while talking to somebody on the internet, you have to tell them. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Nick Thune. His new CD with bonus DVD, Digital Versatile Disc, is called Thick Noon. I didn't know that's what that stood for. Yeah, it's versatile. You can use it for data. You can use it for audio. You can use it for video. So it's very versatile in that sense. It's a triple threat. Absolutely. (laughs) It's the Sammy Davis Jr. of media storage technologies. (laughs) It really have expanded. Yeah. It's great. How and when do you feel like you found your voice as a comedian? How did you how did you figure out who you were going to be? I think there's like yeah, there's basically a couple different ways when you start. You you start you go on stage and at first you're just like kind of spewing everything and you don't know you know like I'm I'm Louis C.K. I talk about my daughter and this although he kind of d- does so many things, but I didn't know my angle and I think I f- didn't find that on stage doing stand up. I found that I DJed weddings and bar and bat mitzvahs for like four years coming out of high school and it's so humbling and humiliating to do those you know and to be servicing like this 13 year old kid who on top of that you're at, his parents are actually paying or maybe even his grandparents so you've got like four different generations to fill in this one show to make them all happy and and it really just taught me how to be likable and how to just kind of drop my pride and to make them like me to get a tip at the end and I think I just that knocked me down so hard to where at the end nothing phased me. Stand up was just like a, a pleasure because I wasn't like the idiot DJ anymore. I was actually a performer, you know. And so I think that kind of drove me to do more stand up because I love performing so much, and that was my only outlet at the time was DJing. What was your um, What was your worst experience DJing? Uh, you know, I, I've had a few pretty bad experiences, although. You know, one that kind of sticks with me today was I showed up. A friend of mine just like happened to not be doing anything on the Saturday. And he's like, I'll just come with, I'll put on a tux and come with you. And so we show up and I walk into the room, which is usually empty and everybody's eating. And I, I'm kind of confused. And I, as I'm walking to the, the caterer or somebody to ask what's going on, the bride gets up and just runs right over to me, starts crying. And she says, you're two hours late. And I, and, and she just, she said, just leave, just leave. Don't even come in here. We don't want you. And I walked out and I, I go to the contract and they had put the time of that it was okay for me to load in two hours ago. They had messed those up on the thing. So it really wasn't my fault that I wasn't there on time, but I was late loading in, I guess. And so I came back in just to do one more like, you know, come on, let's, let's just let me DJ and finish it out. And she said no again. Then her father chased me out and said, you do it. Just she's, you know, not thinking right. So I set it up and we did the show. Everybody was really drunk. Best speech actually I've ever heard. Best man speech was, you know, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in your marriage and I just hope they're all in the bedroom coming from hello coming from his father hello <laughs> it nailed it nailed it the kegs came out and I that meant that there was a four hour dance period which is pretty long to be playing hits from the 80s and 90s so I think I hit like shook me all night long about four or five times the bride <laughs> did do the splits at one point and at the end as I was walking out the tip is everything you go for because I got paid 75 bucks a gig and then on top of that the tip the dad chases me out 
me and my buddy, you know, and I did like four, like I left an, an extension cord to come back in just so hopefully they would see me and give me a tip again. And as I get that last extension cord, he chases me out the door and he goes, Hey guys. And he pulls out two bills. One of them's ripped in half and they were two fives. And he hands me the five and then he hands the rip five to my buddy. He goes, it's ripped, but it'll still spend. Thanks a lot. And just turned around and walked away. <laughs> it felt good. It did feel good to actually get a tip after ruining the wedding, I guess. But, those, you know, it's just, it's just, I don't even know if that's the worst experience. It's just all humbling. So much, so many funny things happen, though. Something that happens, I, I, I worked as a wedding DJ's assistant one summer in Washington, D.C. And, uh, you know, you think of you, DJ is like such a cool gig, right? You're so cool. You know all the music. And this guy that I was working for really had an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of cool in the gang of of music. No, he really. I mean, he was a, his his job when he wasn't DJing weddings was that he was a museum consultant for music museums. Oh wow! So this guy really had a a, a deep knowledge of records, right? Um, but what you what you end up doing is you end up just trying to find a one record that you're happy to play that everyone likes. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it was like, well, I really love kiss by Prince. Like that's one of the only songs of all the songs that everyone likes that you want to play that I actually like to play. (laughs) And the one, and you, and it feels good to play it too. I remember when you, when you hit a song, right, DJ, it's like when you're doing stand up and you get laughs, when you get that dance floor full, and you know that they're enjoying their time. It's like, oh, the best feeling in the world. But then you look back over the playlist and it was, you know, we are family. And it just, oh. and I had to teach <laughs> dances all the time. I was teaching, oh. teaching dances, the Maria, it's a Ricky Martin song, you know, just the most embarrassing things. But I was out there just soaking it up. It seems like one of the, it seems like one of the parallels is that the, um, uh, the great challenge of being a DJ in that situation is that um, you can't uh, you can't lose the audience by being yourself. So the great challenge, the objective is how can I bring the audience along with me, doing something that I like rather than something that I know that they'll like. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, and that's kind of the, th- the thing on stage too. Is you know, it, I, I guess I've just done so many like correlations to between the stand up and that, but. Half the time, the jokes that I really want to tell, like I was just in Vegas for four nights and the audiences were terrible. It was just every demographic in one audience just didn't make sense. And it was hard to get them all together in an hour long set. It was just, you know, brutal. And so I couldn't tell anything I wanted to tell because I had to kind of play the most generic, easiest laugh things. And that's the same thing with DJing. It's like you just hit cool in the gang again, hit, (laughs) hit ACDC one more time. Just every every night. And one more time. That was that song. I remember when I DJed a high school dance, this kid came up to me and he goes, Hey, do you have uh, Funk's Older Brother? That song, Funk's Older Brother? Or do you have that song by Tone Locke? Um, <laughs> just, and then it, and I remember looking at the kid and just saying, You have, sp- you have sparkles on your face. <laughs> and he just turned around and walked away. But I, he had sparkles on his face. I, I feel like I want people to tell me when I have sparkles on my face. It doesn't come from anything good, I would assume. I now have um, nightmares about something called beach music, which is a mid-Atlantic specific thing. Mm-hmm. That once, when I was covering the meal for the guy that I was, uh, that was my boss, um, I just had this string of fifty-seven-year-old white men come up to me asking for beach music. <laughs> And this is something that I guess, if I was a fifty-seven-year-old white man in Maryland. 
I would know what beach music was. It's Jimmy Buffett, right, or something like that. It's like no, it's like um, it's like a subset of '60s R and B. That's sort of like a lighter but still dance friendly '60s R and B. And it only like is Jimmy beach Buffett. music, I think, if you're uh, if you're a middle aged white person from the mid Atlantic states. Mm-hmm. Like it's a very regionally specific thing, and I had no idea what it was. None, less than none. And so I'm like. Uh, and I would just play like, okay, I'm going to play Soul Man, so. <laughs> At least you hit that general, I would have been playing Kokomo. <laughs> I would have known what to do. <laughs> it's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian Nick Thune. What if you could respond to what people wrote in your senior yearbook? <laughs> Dear Mackenzie, thanks for telling me that I'm cool. <laughs> Math class was awesome. I just want to thank you for encouraging me to have a kick-ass summer. Because, I'm going to be honest, I don't know if I would have if you wouldn't have. Sincerely, Nick. P.S. I haven't changed. You've had some really interesting uh, big breaks lately. Um... (laughs) And uh, I, I want to talk. I want to talk to you about them. Mm-hmm. Um, w- one of them is that when Jay Leno launched his um, when Jay Leno launched his 10 p.m. show, the Jay Leno show, not to be confused with the Tonight Show, the 10 spot. the The idea was that this thing was going to be a comedy show, um, more so than a talk show. It the, it ended up moving closer and closer to just being the Tonight yeah. show, the Tonight Show at 10 o'clock. But uh, one of the things they did to distinguish it uh, was add correspondence. And, and you got a job as one of these correspondents. Do you know how you ended up getting the job? I had done The Tonight Show twice, uh, stand-up-wise, and, and they asked me off that, basically. They really liked uh, the, the style of the one piece that was a story, and they wanted me to carry that over. And they actually asked me to make a like an audition tape or whatever. So they gave me their production over the summer when they weren't shooting. And I went down to the studio and, and wrote a piece and filmed it in there and filmed it like pre-taped. And they hired me off of it. And then I slowly got them from making me do these pre-taped pieces because the, the editing and the way they control it, they, they don't really care that much. So they, <laughs> they make it and they're, they're really trying to get it on air right away. So the editing, like they don't, they weren't letting the artist go in the editing bay, which I wouldn't be able to handle that. So I just, I, the only way I could control what I was doing by just one, you know, a live shot, just do it once and see if it works. And this is really a thing. I, I, I heard uh, the other day I was listening to the Adam Carolla podcast, and um, as he is, as Adam is wont to do, he dedicated twenty minutes of his show to complaining about the fact that he didn't have a say in the edit of making a similar kind of field comedy mm-hmm. piece that he had made for Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> and it's, it seems like, you know, like if when you have a really specific, specific voice, it's scary to give it up to a guy who mostly just makes Subaru commercials. Yeah, I mean, because you wouldn't, like a musician wouldn't want to write a song and then record all the parts and then just leave it for the engineer to finish. I mean, you know what your vision was and all those things. And that's basically what they expect you to do is just make this piece, let us film it, and then they figure out how to make it work. And, you know, I was watching friends that were doing those pieces on the show being unhappy about it. Like, just very, you know, not feeling like they were, they were being shown in the best light on TV. It's such an odd... It was an odd... I remember when they announced the group of comedians who were, who are fulfilling this role. 
on the Jay Leno show. And um, I mean, to, it, it, you know, it was a, an exceptionally diverse group yeah. in every way, which is to say that I, I saw the list and there were a lot of talented people on it. But I thought, wow, what is this supposed to be? You should have seen. I mean, I, when I would go in for meetings, Andy Daly would be walking out and I'd be like, Andy Daly's going to do the show. And he's like, yeah, I just you know, pitched him something. You know, and they, had, they really wanted a lot of people. And I think a lot of people like Rachel Harris did one and then she didn't want to do it anymore. I don't know what happened, but... People were just kind of not happy with the experience, but people on the show weren't happy either. They were all, they were put in a weird spot and, you know, it was just a lot of political back and forth, but I got the the good end of it because I just wrote my pieces and performed them live for a month and then did them on TV once and it was easy. They didn't really tell me what to do and what not to do. What was it like for you as a guy who is um, well entrenched in the uh, the comedy scene and particularly the alternative the so called alternative comedy scene here in Los Angeles, um, just like in Andy Daly, for example mm-hmm. um, but you're you 're here in this scene where i 'm going to go out on a limb and say that there are relatively few people uh, who are on board for Jay Leno in general, much less when he um, uh, appears to be, you know, uh, angling for slash accepting somebody else's gig. Yeah. Um, what was it like for you to be in that situation between, uh, you know, having a, a real job on network television mm-hmm. and this looming thing over the horizon that was, oh no, it looks like this show isn't going to work, and I bet if it doesn't work, oh, things are going to get ugly. Yeah, things and things got ugly, and I haven't really felt any fallout from it. Um, I think because I kind of stayed true to my style and didn't alter for them. And, and I think that I came out in my pieces and I, I don't think anybody didn't come out in them, but I, I think that people were just happy that I got a chance to be seen by more people. I mean, that's what I hope. I, I never really dealt with any people like saying, oh, you're on team Leno or anything. Cause I wasn't, you know, I was just taking a gig and I was actually booked to do the tonight show with Conan on February 23rd. I got booked two days before they decided not to have a show anymore. <laughs> and I was actually going to do that show on the 23rd. And then the 26th, I was scheduled to do the, the Leno show. And then they both got, both got it. But inside, nobody cared. Conan didn't care. They, they were going to put me on their show. You know, it was open for them. They, I, don't, I don't know. It just, it was, it was a very weird place to be. It was, I was, I, the day that I found out about it, I was getting coffee on my way to a meeting at, with Leno, not with him, with his people. And, I was reading on Huffington Post about it. And that's the first news I got. And I called the producer and I said, should I even come in? And he's like, yeah, come in, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, walking around, it's so funny, the different stories of people that worked for Conan and the people that worked for Jay. And, you know, I mean, everybody was getting the news as quick as anybody was. So it was like, when I, when I heard that news, they, the producer, he just heard it too, you know? So they were always every day fighting to keep a job. And now they all work for The Tonight Show, <laughs> which I could be doing pieces on right now, but I haven't, I don't know if I... I don't know if I want it this time or not. Who's- well, it's interesting because I mean, there, there does it does feel like uh, there's a difference between uh, getting a great job on network television mm-hmm. um, and then continuing to do it when crazy stuff goes down that's completely out of your control, and you don't agree with, you know, and you, and you do understand. I mean, yeah, I, I definitely was like kind of watching it as a bystander, like really. <laughs> the other one kind of feels like you're you're a you know you're a replacement player when the baseball players go out on strike or something. It's really what it felt like, yeah. And it, but at the same time, it was it was a great feeling because it was so nice to be on prime. I mean, being on primetime television, it was just a, a really fun experience for me. And writing wise, I learned 
a lot because it was really quick turnaround, five minute pieces to be on primetime TV. And I had, you know, two weeks to write it and then two weeks to master it on stage before I did it. So it was fun. It was, it's like a just hustling. I just worked on it every second. Uh, let's hear one of the songs that you uh, perform on stage. Yeah, great. Nick Thune is my guest. It's called Butterflies. It's a song about this girl who broke up with me and broke my heart, and I wrote it like 45 seconds to a minute after. Do you ever think about butterflies? I do. I think about you. You're like a butterfly, I wanna capture you in my net and stick a pin in you And keep you forever and do research I miss you It's the sound of young America, I'm Jesse Thorne My guest is the comedian Nick Thune Nick's been making a good living as a stand-up comic for a few years now But he's also struggled in Hollywood Like a lot of entertainers, he's been cast in several pilots that haven't been picked up What's it like to have these two parallel careers, uh, one of which you have such complete control over, which is stand-up? I mean, you can go, you can at least, at the very least, get on stage and you know what you can do to make an audience laugh. Um, And and you can sort of, you can self-actualize in that way. You know, you can do your thing Mm -hmm. as long as you can find a stage with an audience. Um, And the other of which is this... um, Hollywood world where you just never know what is actual and what isn't at all. There's no feedback loop of I tell a joke and if it's funny, the audience laughs. Like in auditions and and, and mo- making movies and stuff. Every yeah. every single one of these things. Mm-hmm. I mean, even you Radio. get to the point where you book uh you book a, a network television sitcom that stars uh, uh Matthew Broderick and is created by the creator of you know one of the most successful sitcoms of the last 20 years and Mm -hmm. uh and it doesn't work out yeah yeah it's i mean it's it's just so weird the first pilot i made was with kelsey Grammer, and it was for abc and it just seemed like a show like show win like they're just gonna do it there's no way and then he had two mild heart attacks within the week after filming and so that's why it didn't get picked up and he was fine and he went on to do more tv but i see all these things happening like this really with broderick (laughs) lorne michaels paul sims Kristen Johnston, who's hilarious from Third Rock from the Sun, all these people, and it doesn't go. You know, it's, but there was also, that's, you know, so many great pilots that go through that never make it. You know, Jason Bateman was like a guy that he made so many pilots before Arrested Development. He was known as like the pilot. He just did so many because he's so likable and so good, but they just never fit him in the right thing. And that's the one thing you're just looking for is that right fit because you hope that something that's not the right fit isn't going to be the one that catches. And if I didn't get fired from that pilot last year, I think that would have been the end of me. I mean, I, I was so miserable doing it. I didn't realize that until after I got fired. I was like, oh, yeah, this wasn't even a good fit for me. It was <laughs> it was CBS. It's the wrong brand of comedy from, from my liking and, and delivery, I think. It wasn't like the with the Kelsey Grammer thing, you at least got to hang out with his puma. <laughs> he has some crazy animals. He's talking <laughs> about those. He has like elephants, I think, and just weird stuff. He was the kindest. He was just so nice. There's this video of him online doing a thing, and he falls off the stage. Have you seen that? Uh, it's amazing. And what's amazing about it is he's he's do, introducing something or at a charity gala or mm-hmm. something along those lines. He's got the microphone in his hand. He's talking in his beautiful voice. Steps off of the stage. Just takes the most nasty spill. 
just pops back up. All these people have surrounded him, and there, and he is. You can hear him through the microphone, like checking in with everyone else to make sure they're okay. And he swore, he swears yeah. when he falls, and then he apologizes He's, for it. And it's such a sincere apology. Yes, I mean, which made me like him a lot. I watched that as I was taping the show with him, and 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 uh, like I think even in my trailer. <laughs> There's, it seems like there's something to be said for um, uh, for finding a way to gracefully take those falls that you necessarily have to take in, in that industry. I just did one last week where I, on stage, you know, sometimes you pull the microphone out, you, it's kind of caught, and you pull it harder, and you don't realize you're just about to nail yourself in the nose with it. <laughs> and it was a bad one. I mean, it was loud, and it hurt really bad, and, and I had to humble myself out of it, you know, and not get mad, and, you know, you kind of have to... My zipper was down for 15 minutes of a set the other night, and uh, <laughs> the audience was laughing at stuff that wasn't jokes, and I was trying to figure out what's happening that I don't know about, and then finally I was like, oh, great. You thought maybe they were showing an episode of the animated version of Dilbert behind you. Something, yeah. They were laughing at how pointy that one guy's hair is. Either that or the guy, you know, who knows, especially in those things that people are next to the stage are doing stuff that are making the rest of the audience laugh. Well, you know, I, I would guess that uh, that's when that uh, teaching everyone to do the Watusi experience comes in handy. The what? The Watusi? I don't know what that is. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. <laughs> and then, oh, that's the locomotion. Yeah, that's... Sorry. No, I must have been talking say, about the locomotion. I was going to say, is that an XYZ thing? Is that how you spell it? Sound out XYZ? Watusi? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Nick, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the Sound in America. It was a blast to have you. Thank you for having me. Comedian Nick Thune's brand new CD and DVD is called Thick Noon. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our editor is Nick White, our intern, Julia Smith. Our music is provided to us by Dan Wally. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, and you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. All of our shows are downloadable absolutely 1,000% for free in iTunes. Just search for The Sound of Young America or my name. You can also find them on our website at MaximumFun.org. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Twitter.com slash Young American. Just be aware that uh, it's kind of vulgar. I guess that's about all we need to say. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com.